0: Welcome everybody to Sippin' and Shipping. I'm your host, Brian Weinstein. We'll be kicking it here every other Thursday, quenching your thirst for an insider's take to enhance your customer's experience. Grab your drink of choice, kick back, it's Sippin' and Shipping time. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Sippin' and Shippin', I'm your host, Brian Weinstein. Uh, we would not have an army with Harmony unless I had my sidekick, Caitlin Postal, with me <laughs> this week, as always.
1: Hey, Brian, how are you?
0: I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, And today we have a very special guest, uh, Brian Beck from NCIBA, Managing Partner. How are you today, Brian? Doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me. Hi, Caitlin. Uh, Hey, Brian. Absolutely. Our pleasure. So, today we are going to talk about channel conflict. Um, yeah, Brian, I, I think this is something new to you, right? It's not like you've written a book on this or anything.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Brian. Well, yeah, no, I, I um, so yeah, in addition to my work as um, uh, at INSEBA, uh, I wrote a book uh, called Billion Dollar B2B E-Commerce and um that was a that was four years of work right i i see why people don't write books every day right <laughs> but, right right but i right. took uh you know i've been in the field for almost actually you now over 20 years and i took um my 17 years of operating experience as a you know vp of ecom and ceo coo in the in the e-commerce space and you know put it to print and part of one of the key topics is all about this channel conflict because i have a whole chapter on it you know aligning channels and and managing channel conflict because it, it prevents a lot of B2B companies from taking action on their opportunity in e-commerce and digital transformation. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's a topic that's, that's, I don't know, it's near and dear. I don't know how dear it is, but it's near to my heart. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right, right. <laughs> and, and, and I have to imagine this, this has evolved a lot. So, you know, you know, we don't, we haven't seen it as much, you know, we do so much in, in, in our space in fashion. Right. Right. A lot of these brands are, are, are originating as digitally native brands. Um, but where, where we heard about it a lot is, is, is retailers sort of trying to force people's hands on, yeah. on managing their com, uh, their, their uh, e-commerce channels and, and sure. or, or their sales channels. How are you finding that? Where, where does the retailer stand today?
2: Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, yeah, if you're, and by the way, I was in the fashion business for a little while. I ran e commerce for PacSun, which is mm-hmm. Pacific Sunwear. And so, you know, I've been in the apparel space um and so I, I understand that aspect of it and you know where i where i see a lot of it and in, in my world these days uh brian caitlin is is on um a lot of it's in the more traditional b2b markets right where companies are selling to other businesses and in, you know if you look at it from an apparel perspective it's and i have a case study for example with vf in my book mm-hmm. uh which, which is in kind of that that space uh vf corporation and you know the the conflict comes when the um, when the manufacturer, principally when the manufacturer, the brand, the company that has traditionally been in you know, selling through channels like to retail, um, when they start or distribution, when they start selling directly to the end customer the consumer in the case of uh, uh, you know in case of b2c and the the business buyer in the case of b2b and uh and, and and that's a disintermediation of the traditional channel so in other words you know if if the if the end buyer doesn't need the the middle anymore you know the distributor or the retailer what have you you know they're threatened by that right so it's so it puts new pressures on that distribution channel on the retailer on the dealer on the distributor whoever is selling the product to the consumer or to the business buyer to make sure they're they're adding tremendous value to that customer because ultimately if they're not and the manufacturer starts selling direct guess what happens you know that that sale goes to the uh, manufacturer so right manufacturers are afraid of that though. I mean, they, they, sometimes they'll, they'll come in and they'll be, you know, afraid of, um, they, they won't take action because of it. So yeah. that's, that's the, that's the key.
0: So when you talk about the channels, right, you, you can sell directly to consumer, you can sell to brick and mortar retail, right? You can have, you can have marketplaces, online marketplaces. You've got your brick and mortar partners who are selling to their customers online. Um, you could be selling to distributors, Right. So it's all of those channels that present that 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 conflict. Is that correct?
2: That's right. And, and, you know, it's the interesting thing is ultimately the brand or the manufacturer has has the control in this situation. And the economics are powerful, Brian. You know, when you talk about going. When a company sells directly to the end buyer, the consumer, the business buyer, there's a lot of margin, right, between yeah. that, that that wholesale price and that retail price. So that said, you know, brands, manufacturers, they, they're, you know, they they have to respect the traditional channel. At the same time, they have to respect the, you know, the the, the retailer, the distributor, whoever's selling the product, because ultimately, in many cases, that's a lot of their revenue. And a lot of those channels do add value, but they add it in different ways. I think what we're seeing is really a culling of the field and it changed and really, you know, I like to quote um, uh, Jeff Bezos, right? Man, man retiring from Amazon-ish. Uh, he, you know, he talked about in 2010, he talked about the shifting of power in the traditional uh, business value chain. And the fact that the consumer, he was referring to the consumer at the time, but it's, I, I think it equally applies to the business buyer. That, that buyer has more power than they've ever had before because they have more buying choices. You know, you just mentioned it, marketplaces. They can buy directly from the brand. Mm-hmm. There's vertical, you know, these digitally native vertical brands and digital in the, in the world of B2B, there's digital, you know, only distributors and vertical marketplaces. So the, the consumer, the buyer has more power than they ever had, have had, and more price transparency, more options to buy. And as a result, you know things—you know—the the the bar's been lifted, uh, for for everyone. And so I think that's what's really driving a lot of this, you know, fear of of conflict. And uh, but but it's the world has changed, and I think you have to acknowledge it if you're a brand. Caitlin, you have your hand up. I love, I love the way these things.
1: (laughs) That's right. Exactly. So you, as soon as you said the word price, that my hand shot right up. So how do brands maintain a standard price for their products across all their sales channels? Is it possible? And how, how do you achieve that?
2: Yeah, no, great, great question, Caitlin. You know, Price um, is really the big—it's it's the big fear factor, and it's also the biggest thing that that can cause channel conflict. When you think about that math I described, you know the manufacturers has all this margin to work with. If they sell directly, they could, in theory, undercut their channels and offer a lower price. But when reality strikes, um, the manufacturer doesn't want to do that. The brand doesn't want to degrade its own price in the marketplace. That has right. a negative impact across the entire, in fact, if anything, they want to increase the price yep. because, it, you know, it, in general, what I find is that many, the brands who have worked many years, in some cases, hundreds of years to build the, you know, build a, a reputation in the market, a brand about, you know, something they're authority at, they want to lift the price, right? So at the end of the day, what does it mean? What are the tactics a business can use? And this is what I talk about in the book, right? There's uh tactics such as making sure that you're, understanding your distribution channels and you're controlling really the, the distribution rights for people to sell on online one of the biggest challenges companies have and we do this we deal with this every day within Seba because well, we manage amazon programs for for brands and manufacturers and what we find is that one of the biggest offenders on price is amazon right. and it's not it's it's yeah it's marketplaces and so and, and these marketplaces are designed to drive price down to drive margin down to bring more value to the customer on a pricing perspective if you're a manufacturer though what what you know, there are ways to manage that th- through distribution agreements through map or map, map policies minimum advertised price policies but you have to really it's it's kind of paradoxical. You have to go in and control Amazon rather than sell your product to Amazon and forget about it, you know, what they call a vendor central relationship. You wanna get in, you wanna control through what's called a seller central relationship, control your pricing and distribution on Amazon and also other places. So Caitlin, there's a lot of legs to the stool when you talk about managing price effectively. You first need that foundation though of, of channel control and intellectual property protection and other things and then have the stomach as a brand to actually enforce things when you um, enforce your policy. So, um, but at the end of the day, when companies do that, it's amazing what happens. It's There's less channel conflict, and even though you have less distribution sometimes or less retailers selling your product at the end of the day, your sales lift because everyone's more confident in buying the brand. Your retailers and your distributors and your dealers feel better about it because they can make more margin and and you're protecting um, their interests as well. So it benefits everybody. Um, so, so
0: go ahead, Brian. So Brian, I was just gonna say, so going back to, to, to people who are, are considering Amazon as a channel, they have more control if they're on that, uh, the, the, the seller. Mm-hmm. Uh, side Seller, Seller Central. Seller Central. Seller Central. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and because that gives them that price
2: control? Correct. Right. So for, for many, many years, companies have sort of surrendered control of Amazon. You know, when I say companies, I'm, I'm referring to manufacturers and brands. They've surrendered control of Amazon in particular to resellers or to Amazon itself. When you sell through something called Vendor Central or 1P, you're essentially handing Amazon the keys to your price. Um, and and your content and other things. Um, so a lot, what I see happening um, in a lot of cases is manufacturers are now looking to take control back of their uh, presence on Amazon, and that includes both shifting to what's called the seller central approach, which means you're selling through Amazon, but you set your own price, you manage your own content, uh, inventory, et cetera, and, and use you know a company like you guys to help you know with fulfillment and other things. And, um, and that's really the, the path that, that I'm seeing some very large companies pursuing, you know, billion plus dollar companies, brands yep. uh, that are seeking to, to, uh, to manage that price. Uh, so that's, that's one big aspect of it. Yeah, that, and we, we help companies through that every day. You know, and, to and, help.
0: and does Amazon push one way or another or they don't really care?
2: They- you know, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting, Ryan. It's a, such a fascinating dynamic what's happening in Amazon. So for many years, Amazon, their retail business, their their vendor central business, they they drove their business by buying product and selling it. That was the majority of their volume on Amazon for many years. But about three years ago, they crossed over to now more than 50% of their volume is done through this seller central mode, where they, you know, enable the allow the company, uh companies to sell through the platform. And quite frankly, it's more profitable for Amazon in many cases because they don't have to own the inventory. Right. They don't actually take. They don't actually have to assign internal resources to managing the relationships and buying the product. So it becomes it's a win-win for them. And so they've actually been moving um, away more from the one-p model themselves to enabling the three-p or seller central model, uh, and, and and emphasizing that. But ultimately, it really depends on the category and the brand. Okay strategic brand, they want to own the inventory and control the price. Um, so it's, you know, it depends a lot on the brand, but there's a big push across the board, a big trend moving towards seller central.
0: And, and brick and mortar was a little bit resistant to that too, right? I mean, they were, they were trying to force the brands to do what they wanted them to do. Is that, is, is, is that correct? And is that still the case?
2: Well, I think, so. I mean, I think, so. I think so. It depends on uh, which, which brick and mortar you're referring to, but, you know, certainly, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, businesses want to control the experience of, to their customer. And so, you know, to the extent that they, um, you know, want to make sure that they control that through price and et cetera. Yes. I would say that is still, that is certainly still the case. Okay. And of course, if you're referring to Amazon, there's, there's brick and mortar at Amazon these days. Right. They, I just heard they're opening um, hair salons in London. I, that I heard that. Wild. Hair salon. Hair salon. Wow. Well, I think about it for a moment, right? Amazon is always about finding the pain, finding the pain point. Now, if, if you know, if you're, if you're sitting in a, in, in, in a, in a hair salon and you're looking to imagine what you might look like with different, you know, color hair or a different cut or what have you, or styling, they can show you that now through artificial intelligence. So Amazon is applying, as they, as they always do, they apply technology to addressing inefficiencies in a process. There's an example, right? If, you, if you're if you sitting there and you want to know what the, you know, what my, if, what would my hair look like if it was dyed red? Right, right. <laughs> so they can help you solve that. So, you know, we'll see if it works, I don't know. I mean, the, they, they try and test things and they fail all the time, but it's one thing that's very admirable about Amazon is that when well, they have the pockets to do it, but, you know, they have a, cult, a real culture of testing there.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. So so let's go back to th- this whole conflict and and how how you're managing that. So if if you're selling if you're on Vendor Central, if you're with a major retailer who's got you not only in their brick and mortar stores but on their website, and you've got your product in some marketplaces are brands looking at things like, like masking SKUs where that maybe they're offering the same product under different SKU numbers. See, it's, it's harder for consumers to go and search those products out and price shop or how, how do they handle that conflict when, when things are out of their control?
2: Yeah. In addition to, you know, the kind of the things I was talking about earlier related to pricing management, that is another tactic that I see brands and manufacturers using to Manage you know the potential for conflict. So yes, uh, Brian, I'm seeing that all over the place, um, where where companies will create a specific product line for a uh, channel, a retail channel could be for Amazon could be for a brick and mortar store. could be for, you know, a distributor. It depends on what the product is or line is, but manufacturers are getting smarter about how they're thinking about their product line. It's been done for years, but if you you look at where they're investing and creating exclusive products for, uh, you know, for retailers, for example, um, I've seen it happen a lot in the Amazon world. Um, And if you think about it, you know, Amazon, um, uh, you know, the, 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 fact is that there's a lot of trust established with Amazon, 65% of buyers will buy something on Amazon from a brand they've never heard of, uh, because they trust Amazon to take care of the experience. So when you think about, you know, you look at the landscape, for example, of brands there, you you find brands you've never heard of doing millions and millions of dollars in sales. And some of those brands are from established manufacturers that are creating brand specific products you know, different branded products for the channel. So and it's, that's been done again for years on you know through beauty and in in fashion. I'm looking at all the private label stuff there. So uh, four channels, right? So there's there's a lot of that dynamic happening online, and in part it's because you know they want to avoid sort of the downward pressure on price and shopping and things like that. And but most important, I think it's due to channel conflict.
1: And when does a merchant like, as far as timing is concerned, when does it make sense for a brand to add a non D2C channel? You know, is it worth the risk of channel conflict?
2: You mean adding an uh, adding a new channel, right, for e commerce? Um, yeah, I mean, well, it's interesting, Caitlin. You know, you you know, there's a lot of it. And Brian, you said it early on. Um, you know, these these, and you guys work with a lot of these digitally native vertical brands. I mean, look, at the end of the day, in the consumer space, there's now, I think, an expectation that brands will have some kind of direct channel. Right, I think about companies I've worked with, and, and if you look at what's happening, it's fascinating. A lot of these digital, digitally native vertical brands are now being sold in in retail. I, mm-hmm. I, sit, I sit on the advisory board of a large mattress manufacturer, and they are um, looking at that market closely. You see companies like Sotva and Casper and Purple, and all these mattress companies that come out as digitally native brands. Some of those products are now being offered in Macy's. So they're, they're competing now in the traditional channel when they started as digitally native brands. So Caitlin, I think the world's kind of flipped on its head. In other words, you got these virtual digital native brands that are now moving into retail. So so I, I think the writing's on the wall. You need, to, you need to protect your flanks. If you're a brand, you, you, you have to be direct. And I, I think if you're not, you're, you're not giving yourself the leverage you need in the market, uh, because frankly, if you look at the retailers and you look at the distributors and folks that are in the resale business, houses of brands they have their own brands and they're buying their suppliers so it's it's happening everywhere you got to protect your flanks if you're not doing it you're missing the boat
1: yeah, no a hundred percent and the, what what drives my question is I talk to merchants every day who haven't even made one sale yet in their d2c through their d2c channel and they're already having sites of, of target and in big box retailers but are they even considering the conflict that may arise there you know kind of to your point plant your flag first in your own space before you kind of start exploring those b2b channels I guess
2: yeah I think the roar though or the fear um the, the bark is bigger than the bite on conflict uh, there's You know, I work with companies that sell, for example, to Home Depot and Lowe's and, you know, some of the the big box stores. And quite frankly, you know, there's a lot of roar that comes out of those companies when back to the manufacturer, the supplier, but ultimately they know what's happening. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's, I mean, it's, they're not going to stop buying from you. Uh, and, and that's the fear, right? Oh my gosh, they're going to, they're going to move to a different brand who's not doing it or you have to be smart about it. And I, I think transparency and communication is the key. If you go to, and I put that's in my book too, is, you know, is, is, is if you're, if you're being transparent with your channel, you are telling them why you're doing it. Like you got to control your destiny on the, on the web. It is the place particularly post COVID where people are going to research product product but also there's a lot of channel shift that happens too you, you people buy it, look at the manufacturers site the research product make a buying decision then go to retail to buy it or distribution to buy it but you know the, the retailer distribution has to be they have to be adding value beyond just a transaction and so that's what I mean by the bars lifted right if you are honestly looking at your channel and your resale partners start with the ultimate buyer the ultimate customer work backwards is your channel adding value beyond just a transaction if they're not, assume they're going away in the next 10 years because if they are, then, I mean, that's, then, then work closely with them, become closer to the channels that are, they're working for your brand. So anyways, does that make sense, Caitlin? A hundred percent.
0: Yeah. And, 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 you know, I, we, we talked about this. I actually talked about this on a previous podcast. I think some of these digitally native brands are coming in and, and, you know, Brick and mortar is obviously reinventing itself as well. So as a, a different channel. So uh, and, and, and how they're going to approach things differently. And I think when a digitally native brand comes in, I think they're less fearful of being pushed out because they come in as an established uh, D to C brand. But at the same time, I think the retailer wants to work with them because maybe they're hot in, in the e-commerce space. So, you know, there, maybe it's, maybe it's not, it's less of a leverage thing, but more trying to live in harmony of how those channels can benefit one another.
2: Right. Absolutely. 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 Brian. And you know, if you look at the, the digitally native brands that are, that are successful, they're, you know, they're, they're solving a problem for that end customer, the consumer or a business buyer or whatever, the buyer, whoever the buyer is, um, they're solving a a problem. I'll use the mattress industry as an example. So I'm close to it. Um, What do they solve? Well, they solve the confusion of buying a mattress. The traditional way of buying a mattress, think about it, right? The last time you guys bought a mattress, (laughs) you can't compare the products. It's it's like, it's all fluffy stuff that there's no real, that, that you have no idea what you're buying you don't know what's inside the mattress you don't know how to compare the mattresses you don't know um you know the only the the only thing you can do is go lay on it in a mattress store and then listen to salesperson tell you stuff that you don't know is true or not right and and so consumers hate that the experience of buying a mattress is awful and so what these companies have done is simplified it made it transparent and and delivered it digitally and it's it's genius Yep. And it's, it's they're they're Amazonizing that business, and um and and they they become large businesses. These companies are doing three, four, five hundred million dollars a year. Yep. I'm talking about the Sattvas, the Purples, the Caspers of the world, and and there's a lot of them. So you know that field will thin. But the point is, they're solving something for the end customer, and that's what Bezos was referring to. That power is now at the end of the chain. It's the, the power has shifted from the retailer, the seller, to the ultimate customer, the user of the product. And so if you're a retailer in that chain, you've got to, you've got to make sure you're doing things for that customer that don't frustrate them like the mattress. Right. right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, frustration equals disintermediation, right?
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. No, I mean, it's really, it's amazing how that that dynamic has shifted over the years. And really it just doesn't matter the where's or the wins. the consumers want what they want and they're going to get it from one channel or another. And, and everybody has to be prepared to sell to, to them and, and meet their needs. Absolutely.
2: You know, another great story, When I was researching my book, guys, I was looking at, it's looking for other industries like precedents, you know, in terms of, you know, what is coming to the B2B market, what's already happened in many cases to the B2C market. I use the example of the car industry, right? The automobile, think about your own pr- journey recently in buying a car if you bought a car in the last few years, right? It used to be 15, 20 years ago, the dealer would have all the power that they, they, they had they controlled the sales process you didn't know you know what you were you know what you exactly were buying it was kind of like the mattress buying process um and you know it was it was the power was a lot in the hand of the retailer in this case the automotive dealer and their margins were 15 20 percent on the sale of the car today fast forward you've got a situation where the consumer has so much power they have so much information they can see transparently what they should be paying for the car is completely shifted to the consumer. Uh, and so those margins, which were 15, 20 percent 20 years ago, are now 3 percent So how does what is a, what is a smart car dealer doing? They've shifted their offerings to something which is service based. when you're in the dealership, why do you think they push the you know the service plans and the warranties and all that because that's where they make their margin. Uh, they, they're playing off the fear of the consumer that the car is gonna break or whatever and you're, you're paying for these maintenance plans. There's good margin there. But the smart dealers realized that they needed to change their business model. They couldn't. They weren't going to make the money on the car sale anymore. Was everything else accurate, right? So that's and service, right? So that's where they make their money, and and they're doing fine. It's just a changing business. I thought for sure you
1: were going to say that they pivoted and now they're selling mattresses online.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That might be coming, Caitlin. Guess not.
1: I mean, watching the mattress come out of a little box, I don't think it works the same for Carvana, but who
0: knows? (laughs) Very
1: interesting point, though, and a good great example there with the automotives.
0: Yeah, I remember, I remember the first time I walked into a, a dealership and I had like everything that I had printed out and it was, it, it told me exactly <laughs> what their invoice price was. And the guy finally looked at me, he's like, why don't you just give me the sheet and we'll figure out what you're going to pay.
2: David saw some time. Just tell me what you can, tell me what you're going to pay me.
0: Exactly, <laughs> right. exactly.
2: It's very different than it was. All right. Sorry. Well,
0: I think we've done, I think we've solved a uh, channel conflict. So, uh, you know, <laughs> our work here is done today. <laughs> and, and listen, I, most people don't realize this unless you've already gone on and looked at our LinkedIn profile. This all originated for Brian and I on the banks of the Raritan down at Rutgers yep. University. That's D. right. Rutgers University, nice. who by the way, has the number seven ranked. Yes. 2022 football. football Isn't that class. amazing, Brian? I, you know, Greg Schiano.
2: I, I give that guy credit. What a what a fabulous job in a very short period of time. We're going to be a real contender in four or five years in the in the Big Ten. Maybe yes. last. Now I say that within my organization,
0: who's got a, a lot of Ohio State and Michigan people. They all <laughs> laugh at me because yep. we're their homecoming game currently. So, uh-huh. but but we just landed another big recruit yesterday. I heard uh, some tip from six seven defensive end from Indiana. So he's wow. coming from the heart of it. And he's coming, he's coming to the banks.
2: Uh, that's fantastic. Yep, Yeah, well, it's, it's been long suffering, Brian, so.
0: Yes, ex- exactly. <laughs> All right, this has been an uh, episode with Brian Beck uh, from NCIVA and uh, author of Billion Dollar B2B E-Commerce. Really appreciate you coming on, Brian. And I'm looking forward to seeing you the next time I'm in Pasadena. Great, good to see you guys. All right, Caitlin, you wanna take us out?
1: Sure. Thank you, Brian. And thank you everyone for listening. Check us out at sippinandshippin.com or on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, We'll see you uh, two Thursdays from today. Thank you, guys. Thank you.